You know, it's been uh, you know an interesting week or two, and um, a lot of thoughts and reactions I've had. Uh, one of the things that has been on my mind is how what we do week in, week out right here really matters. We are coming together under the authority of Jesus and his word. And in doing this, we are engaging a life-changing power that is greater than any other force on the planet. Hope for our world is found in the transforming power of the living word of God, which is alive and well, as it always has been, as it always will be. And it's made me particularly glad that we are in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it's easy to lose sight of what it means to be a Christian, you know, especially when sometimes we get our faith um, intermingled in cultural passions, political passions. At the end of the day, we're followers of Jesus Christ. And that's been what I've felt particularly strong um, the last couple of weeks, but also going back into the fall. My allegiance is to a single individual who walked this earth and died, was resurrected, is still alive today, whose spirit lives in me through my faith in the, his work and, and his death for me. And if you think about what it means to be a Christian, you think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I mean, it was as simple as Jesus calling these, these men and women around him and they began following him around. And what that meant in their context was a little different than what it means for us today in the sense that we can't literally follow him from town to town. But here's what it meant in their context that it does also mean for us and ours. What Jesus said they believed. What Jesus commanded, they obeyed. And what Jesus did, they did. Imperfectly, of course. And you see these lives of these disciples, you know, messy. And, you know, they're one minute, they're following him in an incredible way. And the next minute, they're just like, you forget whose you are. But this is the path of life that Jesus has called us to. And so 2,000 years later, here we are also now following Jesus, claiming to be disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. And, and really what the Sermon on the Mount is, is it's kind of the, the Magna Carta of Christian faith. It's the, the words of Jesus saying, here's what the upside down world looks like. Here's, here's the upside down path that I'm calling you to, which is why where we get all this image of upside down. Because what Jesus is saying is, you think life is an upward trajectory of get more and enjoy more. And, and in, you know, you're trying to get to this place where you've got it all together. And he said, no, life is a downward trajectory of giving yourself away more and more and more that has a resurrection on the other side of death. Literal death, yes, but also resurrection life in the hundreds of thousands of little deaths along the way to your literal death. So think about Jesus. He started off with big crowds and then they thinned out and they rejected him and they mocked him and they put him on the cross. And when his life came to an end, nobody was there except his mom and his best friend. That was the downward trajectory of Jesus Christ, and he says, come and follow me on this path. And so do you actually believe that the path of Jesus is the path of life? 
Jesus said through the sermon, let me show you a way of living that will seem completely upside down and illogical, but it is what you were created for. It is actually the path of flourishing. And so to that end, Lloyd said it really well yesterday. I thought he had it, or yesterday, last week. Uh, he had an insight that I thought was really helpful. He said, the Sermon on the Mount runs on two rails. Like think about two rails of a railroad, the kingdom of God and the heart of man. And I think those two rails come together actually pretty well in one of the hardest verses of the sermon, which is, uh, we'll put, I'll put this on the screen, Matthew 5.20. This is not today's text, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. But Matthew 5.20, ooh, I need to hit my button right there. There it is, okay. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and so you should be feeling this sense of like, ah, yeah, yeah, the scribes and Pharisees, although, you know, they didn't have it all together, they looked better on the outside than I ever could. And you'd be right about that. And that's what Jesus' audience would have felt too. But then Jesus is essentially saying, you know, it's actually kind of like an iceberg that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is external only. They really only care about looking good on the outside and doing all this righteous deeds. God sees what's below the waterline of the iceberg as well as what's above. And the 90% of your true self, right, is what's below the waterline. We talk about the whole heart here at Fellowship, but what's below the waterline that no one can see are the motivations of your heart, the intentions, the questions, not just what you do that may be good, but why you do those things. That has to be transformed. That has to be purified. And at some point you just say, well, where's my hope? I can't even do what's right, much less do it for the right reasons. And that's the place when you're ready to follow Jesus. Now, we're in a part of the sermon that takes this iceberg image and applies it specifically to our religious practices. Praying is today's topic. Last week was giving, next week is fasting. And Jesus is saying, look, there is a way to do religion that is above the water, external. It looks good on the outside, but it has very little reward. And there is a way to engage your faith that will transform the whole. Which one are you pursuing? The first verse of this section that we're in is verse one. Lloyd covered it last week, but this is the thesis of the section. So I wanna talk about it briefly and then we'll get to our verses. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. That's the big idea. That's the thesis. And then he's gonna take, remember, y'all remember like middle school and high school, they teach you how to write a, a paragraph is, you know, you state your thesis and then, you know, you got three supporting points and then you're gonna, Jesus follows this exact same format in this section of the sermon. That's the thesis. Then he's gonna say, illustration one, giving, last week's message. Illustration two, prayer, this week's message and next week's two. Illustration, illustration three, fasting, which we'll get in two weeks. Let's talk about, Prayer, what does it mean not to practice righteousness before other people, but to do something different? Here's today's text. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret 
will reward you. Now, I want to diagram something for you here because the way that Jesus engages um, these two concepts is really interesting. There's a lot of parallelism going on. Notice he starts off verse five, when you pray, and then he, he comes down again in verse six. So he, he's setting them up for a contrast. He's like, you know, when you pray, don't be like this, but when you pray, rather be like this. So what is the thing that he does not want them to do? And he said, don't be, don't be like the hypocrites. Well, well, why not? It's like they stand and they pray the synagogues at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Okay, so he's saying this is what they do, but the real problem is the motivation of their heart. He's saying, instead, here's what I want you to do. So here's the contrast. Go in your room, shut the door, pray to your father in secret. That is the contrast of the behavior and the heart. And then here's the contrast of reward is the third thing in Jesus' parallel structure. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. What about us? Your father will reward you. So do you want a reward from man or do you want a reward from God? That, that's, that's where this is going. Now, I wanted you to just sort of see this to kind of see how the text is working together. I mean, you know, Jesus is saying, look, let's talk about prayer. Don't be like this, rather be like that. Don't seek this reward, rather seek that reward. Do you see how he's putting this in parallel? Now, I'm gonna remove all the scribble just so you can kind of see the text a little more clearly. Whoops, hold on. Go back. Go back. That's the application. Tell you what, I'm going to try to erase it this way. Can I do that? No. I'm I'm hitting this once and it's going twice. Okay. At some point in time, I'm going to stop. (laughs) Hands off the iPad. Um, Tell you what, let's do. Let's leave that up in there for another minute or two and then just take it it down so we don't, don't hurt their eyes. All right. Now, Here's the cultural context. There were people of that day that would strategically place themselves in public spaces at the hour of prayer. Now, in the um, Jewish culture of the day, you were to pray three times a day. When you got up in the morning, in the middle of the afternoon, around three o'clock, which was the time of sacrifice, and then in the evening. And so wherever you were, if you're shopping, if you're doing the laundry, if you're preparing a meal, if you're wherever you were, you were to stop and you were to pray. It just so happened that some of these like, you know, bigwig religious guys, they would find themselves on the busiest street corner at three o'clock in the afternoon, you know? Oh, I wonder how that happened. Well, I guess since I'm here in front of all these people, I might as well stop and pray and, you know, do all the whole show of it. The street corners, busiest areas of town, you think about that, everybody's on foot in this culture for the most part. The synagogues weren't, it wasn't just church like we know it. Synagogues were the community centers. So they're just busy all throughout the week. This is the, the hub of community. Uh, I don't even know what, the, we don't really have a, a cultural equivalent really in our day, except maybe like, I don't know, a really popular um, Starbucks or some kind of coffee shop hangout where, you know, if you want to be seen, you go there. So these religious, certain religious people were saying, look, I'm going to make sure I'm going to be in public spaces when I'm praying so everyone knows that I take my faith seriously, that I'm a really good religious person. Now, who is their audience? When they're, when they're doing it in the busy street corners and Jesus can see the motivation of their heart, and they're doing it in the busy synagogue and Jesus can see the motivation of their heart, he's saying, who's the audience? Call it out. Who's the audience? Who are they praying, praying for, so to speak? Yes, yeah, yeah, other people, other people. Isn't that ironic when the purpose of prayer is conversation with God? 
So a, a, a prayer that's directed for other people to hear is not a prayer. It may sound like a prayer, but there's something else. It's something else. Imagine that you invite some people over, friends, family, loved ones, for a delicious meal, and you spend hours in the kitchen, and it's your best special recipe. You know, you've perfected this thing over time, and you get it, and it smells delicious, and it turned out just right. And they're sitting at the table waiting for you to bring this beautiful dish over. But before you bring it over, you say, well, hold on a minute. The real reason I wanted to to make this meal is so I can get it on Instagram. You You take a picture of it, you post it to your Instagram, you know, everybody can like it, and then it just goes in the trash. How foolish, how silly. You know, you laugh because you know, how, how, how silly that is. But if that's the purpose, you weren't loving those people. If the, the purpose of a meal is to give something away, the purpose is to create a shared experience where you're giving something of yourself to be consumed by someone else. And, and instead, just to put it on Instagram and, and take, you know, oh, what a great, that looks a gorgeous gift. I wish I had your culinary skills. You haven't done anything with your culinary skills. You haven't given them away, you see. Now, Jesus is saying what may sound like prayer is not always prayer. What it looks like on the surface is not always what's happening in the heart. So he offers an alternative. He offers an alternative. And that's where we get, oh, thank you for doing this. That's where we get to verse six. When you pray, contrast, the word but is the contrast word. Go into your room and shut the door. In other words, secret, private. Pray to your father who is in secret. Don't don't get all wigged out by what that means. All that means is pray to your father who's in that secret place with you. Like you know, there may be no one else in there, but but we have a God of the, the secret places, a God that, that is everywhere. Pray to your father who is in that secret place with you and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Who is the audience when you're praying in a room by yourself? God, and only God. I think Jesus is saying, if you can um, reduce it down to an audience of one, it removes the conflict of motivation in your heart. Does this mean, by the way, that we should never pray ever in front of other people? By no means. Jesus did that often. You know, I certainly hope it doesn't mean that because I've already done that at least once this morning. I'm going to do it again. That's not the point. The, the point is you can pray in a way that you're talking to God and other people are listening, but it's really easy to those words to be directed for other people, to impress other people. And it is not many people like praying in public. I see this in our, our small group. You know, Jody and I lead a fellowship group and some of our fellowship group members are here, so I won't you know, make eye contact at this moment. But we don't just randomly call on people to pray because like, we've gotten feedback. It's just like, I will join your group as long as you never call on me to pray <laughs> because a lot of people are uncomfortable praying in public. And, and honestly, when you pray in public, it is hard to be talking to God. And, and not just being worried about how, what you're saying and is it coming out right and am I sounding like an idiot? So Jesus is saying, put the training wheels on, go in the closet, learn to pray in the closet. That's how you're gonna learn to pray. And then once you've got that down, yeah, if you can keep your focus on God, absolutely. Encourage others, pray together, do all these things that Jesus did in his own ministry too. Here's how Andrew, I said that in the first service, Andrew, not Andrew Peterson, <laughs> Eugene Peterson. Andrew Peterson, musician, Eugene Peterson, Bible translator. Eugene Peterson wrote the message, a paraphrase of the Bible. Here's how he paraphrased verse six. 
Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense his grace. If the substance of prayer is talking to God, then talk to him, him, directly, him. Be with him. That's what Jesus is saying. And all this other nonsense, if your heart is in the wrong place, it's not prayer at all. And he's, now listen, he's saying there is a reward attached to that nonsense. The reward is people will think you're good at spiritual stuff. Big deal. People think you're spiritual. Big deal. Big deal. That's what Jesus is saying. He's like, they've received their reward. People think they're great. Whatever satisfaction they can get out of that, that's theirs. But you should seek a different reward. By the way, in Peterson's words here, you know, don't be tempted to role play before God. I, I was just a little bit slayed by that this week. And here's the thought that came to my mind. It's like, I don't, I don't know if I've ever been caught on a street corner praying ostentatiously for people to see. I doubt anybody in this room really has ever been, maybe you can't identify with the scribes and Pharisees in this context, but how many of us are mostly just role playing our faith? In a culture like ours, Williamson County, where... Um, a lot of people go to church and, and just about everybody kind of looks pretty good and kind of has it all together and there's a lot more of the iceberg going on underneath. How many of us are actually really mostly role-playing our faith? And that's where Jesus is going with all this. You can go ahead and take those verses down off the screen. Thank you. Um, what Jesus is doing in this whole section, you know, he's talking about three individual things, giving, prayer, fasting, but what the big topic is religion. These were the three things that the Jews of their day did that were the pillars of their religious practice. These were the three things that if you did these, you were a righteous man or woman. Jesus is pushing into the heart of religious practice, of the do's and don'ts. The best way to see this is to apply it to us. Here's a question I want you to wrestle with literally, you know, in your, in your own mind right now, what's your motivation behind your religion? In other words, what are you trying to accomplish with all the religious practice stuff you do? And some of you might be thinking, well, I don't do any religion. I do relationship, okay? Good, good for you, you know? And that's the heart of this passage, but I, wanna, I wanna, just wanna talk about your religious practices because you're here or you're watching online, therefore you're a churchgoer. Uh, I'm guessing you pray, at least from time to time, so you are a prayer. Maybe you serve in one of our ministries or in another ministry in the area, so you're a server. Most of you give to our church, to Global Offering or our other, other ministries, so you're a giver. You probably read your Bible, at least on occasion, if not regularly, so you're a Bible reader. Maybe you're also a journaler. Maybe you're a small group member. Maybe you're a Bible study leader. Maybe you're an a Instagram scripture poster. What is your motivation for all the religious stuff you do? What are you hoping to accomplish? That will take you down a hard and, and life-giving rabbit hole. Religion, as it's typically conceived, is a combination of beliefs and behaviors people engage as a part of their quest for the good life. 
So the motivation of religion is usually either to earn God's approval or, or to, to look or feel like a better person or to have a sense of hope about things. Or maybe because your kids need it, so you're here with them. Or maybe your, your wife really wants you to come and engage this stuff, so you do. Or maybe just to sort of pacify feelings of guilt that you have inside of yourself. Or maybe to kind of desperately reach out and sort of find something that's missing in your life. Or, or maybe you, you think you just got to earn eternal life somehow. Or maybe all these different motivations that may be in our hearts and we're sitting in the same room this morning. The default motivation of nearly all religious practice is to seek a reward. That's why you do what you do, to seek a reward. Surprisingly, Jesus does not completely deconstruct that. Notice he does not say anywhere in this section, don't do religious things to seek a reward Instead, just do them completely altruistically. That is not his message. His message is far more brilliant, far more compelling. He knows the human heart. He created the human heart. So he's saying, seek a reward. Just make sure it's the right reward. The true reward, you see, is not... um, uh, let me feel better about myself. Let me, let me try to make my family work better. Uh, let, let me try to impress my wife, my, her thinking I'm a spiritual person. Uh, let me try to attain eternal life as if you could attain eternal life. The true reward is none of those things. The reward you should be seeking is God himself. What you most need is found only in him. Not things from God, but God. This is what the the, the older son in the lost son parable got wrong. He got angry at the end when the father was so gracious toward the one who came home and killed the fatted calf and threw him a big party. And he's outside the party with his arms crossed. He's like, what'd you do for me, dad? I'm loyal. I'm faithful. I'm the religious one in this relationship. And I haven't gotten so much as a lady thing. You see, his heart was he wanted the things of the father, not the father. And so Jesus is saying, look, 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 look. A religiously motivated person seeks things from God. A person whose heart is being transformed by Jesus seeks God himself. And that difference, men and women, is the iceberg. Like that difference is massive. And so then you peer into your own heart. I'm picturing below my waterline. I'm like, oh my God, my Lord, help mercy on me because I don't desire you like I should. And so, listen, um, if I go into a quiet room this week and I have alone time with God for 10 minutes or 15 or 20 or, or, or whatever it is, is this so that I can feel good that I checked it off the box and that I'm, my year is off to a good start and I'm doing all these right things or so somehow my wife might catch me doing that and be proud of her husband or my kids might see me and be proud of their dad or am I seeking a higher reward? Let me tell you something. What reward do you get from 10 minutes of praying in a secret place? 10 minutes of one-on-one time with the creator of the universe. So I think this essentially boils down to what do you want? What do you really want? 
Because what you most want is what you will seek. And what you will seek is usually what you will find. What do you most want? Do you want God or, or are you practicing your righteousness for some kind of lesser reward? And guys, like this slayed me this. I mean, I was just, I, I want to tell you this because I, I want to encourage you um, that, that here I am, I'm a, a pastor who's wrestling with these things and, and I want to encourage you to wrestle with them too. And some of you are f- so much further along than I am. But to truly hear the words of the sermon, you have to let them kind of do their work inside of you. It, like when you go through the Sermon on the Mount, it's not enough just to understand what Jesus was saying. You have to sort of say, okay, what would it mean for me to actually follow Jesus in this? And so I want to share with you a little of the work God's been doing in me through this text. You know, um, practicing my righteousness before other people is, is an occupational hazard for me. Much of my um, religious stuff comes in front of you or our staff, you know, or fellowship group that I lead or um, even like leading my family and around, you know, praying in front of meals. You know. Again, that doesn't mean they make it wrong. But my, my, Jesus pushed into my heart this week, and I want to just talk about the one that really emerged the strongest for me. Um, courageously real, preaching. A big part of what my job, like my requirements, okay? I report to the elders. I'm, I'm an elder, but I report to the elders. And a big part of my job is to, to come up here every week, either at Brentwood or Franklin, and teach God's word. I, I'm doing that 52 weeks a year, except for the few that I have off. And, and so it's a part of my job, and it's a joy. Here's the thing. When I come up here and my motivation is God's glory and love for you, it is a joy like I can't even put words to it. But here's my confession. Oftentimes, I care more about what you think than I do about God. That's just true. It is really easy for me to write a doctrinally sound, well-constructed sermon. I've, I've learned how to do that. And it's really easy for me to um, deliver it in a way that has, you know, vocal variety and eye contact and energy and passion and, and these kinds of things. What is not so easy for me to do is to try to disappear as I preach and, and, and for it actually to be about God's glory and love for you and serve you a meal, not post it to my Instagram. This is what it means for me to pursue the wrong reward. And, and actually what I think Jesus has told me this week is, Rob, you, you, can, you can have that reward. You, you, people can think you got your act together. People can think you're a decent teacher. People can think that you know, you're leading well or whatever. You can have that reward. That is not the reward that is life. So here's what I want to encourage you. Uh, as I was able to identify some of that in, in my heart this week, I was able to take it to Jesus. And, and repentance is always beautiful. And here's the reality, guys. Motives are always going to be squishy. 
My motives are always a mixed bag. I don't know that I have ever done anything out of 100% pure motive in my entire life. Until my sanctification is complete at Jesus' return, I don't know that that will ever be the case. But I'll tell you what is growth. (laughs) Having my eyes opened and repenting to the sin that Jesus reveals to me. Once you can identify, and and I want to encourage you to do this this week, seriously, because once you can identify what's not right in your own heart, you can humbly bring those things to Jesus. And there you will always be met with open arms because Jesus said, I've not come for the righteous, but the sinners. And and when I I hear that, when I'm thinking rightly, guys, well, I'm thinking, I want Jesus. I'm a sinner. I am not righteous. If if, if it means you came for the sinner, then, then I am one of them. Come for me, Jesus. He has come for me. The things that Jesus came for are the most broken parts of me, which in my case are mostly below the waterline of my life. That's what's fractured and fragmented the most. So, so Jesus, come in and heal those things. And so this is what I want to encourage you to do. So each week of the sermon, we uh, close the sermon series we close the message by putting an application slide on the screen, and, and I want to do that now. And it always has the same heading, Jesus, show us what it means to follow you, is, is what this says. Uh, and, I, and I want to read this. There it is. Number one, schedule a time this week to meet with God in a secret place. One of the best things about this particular text is you can literally apply it do exactly what Jesus said to do. If you're a follower of Jesus, why would you not this week say, I'm going to practice this. I'm going to put the training wheels on. I'm going to go in a, in a quiet secret place somewhere with the door closed where there's just no one but me and God, and I'm going to spend one-on-one time with the creator of the universe. Put it on your calendar. You know, prioritize this. I, I'm really serious. And then number two, when you're in that space and in your prayer time, maybe this is a good question to ask God. Would you deepen my desire to be with you? this year. Because here's the reality. Once you see that all your motives are for other things, it's just like the reality, you might be like, honest, if, 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 if someone gave me truth serum, the honest reality is I'm doing the church thing. I'm doing the Christian thing, but I don't know that I really desire God. Have you ever asked him? God, I need to desire you more. I don't. And I, I, I need to pray this prayer because it's wrong in my heart. And, and again, I'm telling you guys, when you come, before, come to God with humility, he always responds with grace. Always, always. This is how we can follow Jesus this week. I want to invite you now to take out the communion elements that you picked up on your way in. I, I hope you did. If not, don't be shy to just go back and grab one right now if you missed it. This is what we do as followers of Jesus. Uh, So I want to invite you, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to go ahead and open this up and I'm going to lead us through it together and get get the bread ready. You might even want to go ahead and crack open just a little bit the the juice part because sometimes that's tricky. Have that ready. And, And as you're doing that, let me just say a couple things. Each week is an opportunity for us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so I don't know if you've noticed how our service flows. We begin with a call to worship. Brian did a great job of leading us into worship this morning. And then we sing songs and we're going to pray. And, 
and we're going to give and then we're going to come under the authority of God's word and then we're going to respond. That's how the service always flows. And what strikes me every single week is that the word of God always points us to our utter need for Jesus. Because you'll, you'll encounter God's word and you'll be like, I can't do that. And the, yes, you, you're right. You cannot. You cannot. You need Jesus. So we have been convicted this morning of our utter need for Jesus. And then we come to the table as a reminder that our need has been met. Our thirst has been satisfied. Our hunger has been filled. And this is an opportunity to taste and see the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. The bread you hold in your hand and the juice you hold in your hand points you to two truths. Truth number one, your sin is so great, Jesus had to die for you. There was no other way to take care of that problem than his own death. Truth number two, he loves you so much that he did die for you. And so with those two truths in mind and with gladness of heart, let us eat the bread and drink the cup.